podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles, and with me are Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a special guest with us today, Matt Iverson. Hi, guys. Hello. How are you doing? Great to have you with us today in this episode. Today in our episode, we will be discussing Gulivar, the Terror of Arnor. And in our open topic, we will be talking some monster tactics. So before we begin with the profile, just a few questions for Matt. Matt is joining us from the east coast of the United States in the Boston area. Matt is also one of the members of the Unexpected podcast. So many of you who listen to that podcast will recognize Matt. How's the podcast going? Uh, it is It is going. You know, we've done the transition from the COVID world when we had a bunch of people that were kind of sitting around looking to uh, kill some time on uh, weekends and not seeing anyone else or doing anything else to the post-COVID world where people are actually like going out into the sunlight again and uh, having lives again. So it's, you know, it's been an interesting transition, but we have a good stable of guys from across the country and around the world. So, you know, we're, we're trying to continue to crank out episodes. There's lots of content from these guys. Make sure to check out the Unexpected Podcast. It's on, uh, I believe, the DC Hobbit League YouTube channel. And uh, I believe it's also available on Spotify, right? Yeah, it's on it's on YouTube. Um, it's also available on Spotify and, you know, where, basically wherever you get your, your podcasts. The thing I should warn people is if you're looking for it, you know, type in an unexpected podcast. There is also an other unexpected podcast out there that's a literary podcast. Um, that's not us. With the exception of one episode, we don't read from books. But if you type unexpected podcast SBG into the search, that should pull it up. Sounds great. So a little bit about you. How did you get into this hobby and how long have you been playing the game? Uh, gee, how long have I been playing the game? So I think I've been playing the game for six or seven years. I'm a little uncertain because the way I got into the game was actually through my son, not because he introduced me to it, but rather because I introduced him to it. It was a historical military wargamer, miniature wargamer for ages and ages, probably since I was nine years old. And, you know, when my son kind of reached that age of around nine, I was casting about for ways to get him interested in my hobby. Uh, he didn't really have much interest in the historical side, but boy, did he love the Lord of the Rings. And I was like, huh, I wonder if there's some sort of war game out there for Lord of the Rings. So I did my Googling and I found out there was, and it was called War of the Ring. So I went out and I bought those rules and read them and went, boy, I need to get an awful lot of figures for this started to started to do that and you know boy evan loved the book though he just devoured the book and then we went we went on a trip i think to scotland and stopped at the games workshop store and discovered that lo and behold there was this skirmish set of rules that didn't require you to acquire and paint hundreds of figures in order to play so we picked up those rules and that was kind of the the start i guess if you start out with war of the ring everything now seems cheap yeah, exactly. No kidding. <laughs> and once um, you have a War of the Ring army, you can also play MESPG. Yeah, well, yeah, with that one army. But, you know, it, it's not like you're going to own multiple War of the Ring armies because you have to find a place to store them. And unless you're you know, kind of independently wealthy and have your own mansion, you're not going to be able to do that. So tell us a little bit about your local group. What is it like? 
Would you say that it's mostly competitive for casuals or narrative players? What's the composition like? So uh, I think it's a lot of, I'm not quite sure how to describe it because it's not narrative players. Um, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a competitive scene, although there are a few people up here other than us who do go to tournaments. I would say it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of playing for fun players. You know, they're not necessarily going to you know, put together a, a narrative themed army, but on the other hand, they're not, you know, like traveling about the country and about the world going to tournaments and really fine tuning that killer tournament army. You know, they're more likely to show up, uh, you know, they'll, they'll show up once a month, they'll show up to a, for some games at, at our place or the store, or, um, you know, every couple months we'll do a game day or something like that. And, you know, they'll, they'll put together an army that they, they want to try and they'll play it and they'll, you know, kind of see how it goes. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a nice mix. So I guess my question is when you go to a tournament, what's kind of like your focus? Cause we know you're like, you know, a Nova champion and a really competitive player, but do you go to every tournament, like looking to smash people <laughs> or do you like, oh, well, no. So, you know, it's actually kind of funny because I have developed a reputation, at least among the competitive scene, as the guy who shows up with a really whacked out army. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It's usually fun to play. But, you know, sometimes that that whacked out army will win. And but oftentimes it won't. And I tend to be seduced down the garden path of, ooh, this will be really cool to play. So, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll show up at Articon with the, you know, the, uh, the champion's chariot and, you know, Gandalf and a couple other figures. And I'll throw it on the table and see what happens. And, you know, I, I've done that a couple of times. But, you know, I, I, I will go and I'll, I'll take a competitive army at times. But much more so than my son, I think, I tend to, I tend to try not to stray far from theme occasionally i will do it if i feel you know i have to or it's been too long since i've really played a competitive list but i try and come up with a theme and try and make that theme work if i can so i guess the last question i have is uh, we're really happy to have you on here to talk about Boulevard. we saw you do pretty well with it at the last nova event what other armies are among your favorites to bring to tournaments Oh, let's see. Well, you know, I go in phases because, you know, having been collecting for a while, I think we've reached the point where between Evan and I and our collective figure collection, we can field just about any army we want to, with a couple of exceptions. But, you know, so like I said, I guess I go in phases. I, I, I recently have gone through kind of a Corsair phase where I've been, I've been playing Corsairs. Before that, I was kind of in a Minas Tirith phase for a while, and I was doing different variants of Minas Tirith with, you know, Boromir or Heaven for Fen, Gandalf the White. See earlier section about bringing crazy armies to tournaments. Right now, actually, I'm having fun with Easterling armies and the new Easterling figures, which are, you know, the, the two new heroes that came out, actually, I think, for reasons I have not fully understood myself, but I think have to do with the number of troops you can fit in the army, actually, I think, make the Easterlings significantly more competitive. So I'm playing around with those. The the armies I really like to bring are, frankly, the armies that kind of look pretty on the table, which aren't necessarily the most effective armies and certainly aren't the most effective when used in combination. But those tend to be the armies that I gravitate to. All right. Awesome. Let's move on to our main topic of the day, which is Boulevard, the Terror of Arnor. All right. 
So Gulivar, the Terror of Arnor, is 200 points. He has the Spirit, Angmar, Monster, Infantry, Hero Keywords, so Hero of Valor. His war gear is simply huge claws and teeth. He has heroic strength and heroic defense. His special rules include Fly, Harbinger of Evil, Monstrous Charge, Resistant to Magic, and Terror. He has two other special rules, an active special rule, Immortal Hunger. Gulivar regains a single wound for each model he slays in combat. Rend is the only brutal power attack that allows Gulivar to regain wounds in this manner. This can never take his wounds beyond four. He also has Strength of Body, Strength of Will. Gulivar's attacks and courage are always equal to his remaining wounds. I've just realized I never read out his stat line. So, Gulivar has a move of six. Of course, that's affected by the fly special rule. Fight seven, shoot four, strength of eight, defense of five, variable attacks, four wounds, variable courage, three might, three will, no fate. And of course, the attacks and courage are affected by the strength of body, strength of will special rule. Yep, that's Gulivar. General thoughts about this profile? Is he a profile that you would see in the majority of Angmar lists? So you certainly see Gulivar a lot. I think he is probably number two on the Angmar hit parade behind the Witch King of Angmar. And, you know, he comes in above, I think, number three, who's the Shade. I think the Shade probably used to be number one back before he he got all his complicated uh, rules changes and FAQs to make him not be alliable into any other army. But you know, Gulivar is one of these models that is incredibly powerful if you know how to use him right, and incredible point sink if you don't. And I think once players actually start to get used to Angmar and get used to using him, then I think he is kind of the go-to guy for playing Angmar. But you know, he's not the guy that you put in the beginner Angmar list. I think you want to get used to playing Angmar and playing its special rules and, you know, dealing with flying monsters before you put this guy on the board. Yeah, I uh, definitely agree with that. I do think there was a lot of hype around this model about maybe a year into the new edition. I blame the Green Dragon, obviously. I know Kylie uh, spoke very highly of this profile, but... What I do notice is, yeah, like it's a world of difference between like players that know how to use this versus I feel like more beginner players who, you know, it makes sense when they pick up Angmar, they still want to play this model. Like it's this big flying monster, you know, you're rolling 10 attacks on the charge if you win the fight. So, yeah, but it's just it's really, really swingy. Like he's an absolute glass cannon. Uh, He could kill anything, but then he can also just die as well. I think he's the definition of a glass cannon. I can't think of another hero that's around the 200-point range that's as easy to kill as him. His damage output is crazy, but also for his points, he's not very tough. I found what Matt said really interesting about Gulivar being just under the Witch King and Shade in third place, because I think locally we don't see Shade a lot, and it's usually whether people want to take Gulivar or Barrow Whites. Barrow Whites are usually the number two or the number three. So it's interesting that you put the shade in a higher spot than what we see here more often. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think, I mean, you see Barrow Whites with the Wish King, you see Gulivar, you see Barrow Whites with the shade, but the Barrow Whites aren't the centerpiece of the list, right? Wish King, Gulivar, and Shade are all centerpieces, and you'll see at least one of them in every Angmar list. You usually see two of them. You don't usually see three. I took a stab at it uh, with today's list, as you'll see. But 
you know, the, the Barrowites are almost like, they're kind of like the shamans of this list. Of, you know, obviously they, they have a different role, but, or, or they, they cast different spells, but they're support characters, right? Gulivar, the Shade, and the Witch King are the, the figures that will shape the army and shape the tactics that the army will use. And then you can just add Barrowites into that and they help out. I mean, I guess, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is, as far as the, the big three is, you know, you can run an Angmar list without Barrow Whites in it. You cannot run an Angmar list without, or you probably should not run an Angmar list without either the Witch King or Gulivar or the Shade. Because at that point, the list has no advantages over any other army, I think. Well, you could be running Dimmer Lake. You could. <laughs> it's an option. Why you would want to, I don't know. I mean, it, an argument could be made for, um, oh, geez, who's that? Who's that? Uh, the troll with might, the, the uh, super birder. Birder troll. Birder, yeah. I mean, you can make an argument at low points for saying, all right, I'm going to base this army around Birder. But at that point, you know, an army that's like based around Birder is almost not an Angmar army because it doesn't have. It doesn't have, you know, the spooky stuff that comes with Angmar with, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm a spirit and I, everybody within three inches of me causes terror and that sort of stuff. So it'd be kind of important. more like playing the blockade opens. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Yep. So Matt and Richard earlier mentioned that Boulevard is not like the most beginner friendly model to, to control. Just thinking other than the fact that it's a glass cannon. Also, I think the other one is because he doesn't have heroic strike. So maybe the straightforward way of using like a combat hero is to throw him into the enemy hero and then call a heroic strike. But that's not really how you want to use Gulivar. I think what you usually would want to do is use his might on heroic combats, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Or on heroic defenses, if he does get pinned down, it's nice to have at least one might in the tank in case somebody with heroic strike shows up. Yeah, I mean, so the problem with Gulivar, and I guess we should talk about kind of what makes him a glass cannon and it's a combination of two things. Uh, it, the most obvious one being that he's defense five. So, you know, he's not defense seven. He can't take a punch. He's got four wounds. But if he has a bad round of combat against, you know, a decent hero and one of his buddies, or, you know, even just a, a bunch of ordinary guys when he's trapped, uh, he can go down. The other thing is he's got his you know, strength of body, strength of will rule so that his attacks go down with his wounds. So he's absolutely terrifying when he's got four wounds. He's scary when he's got three wounds. He's modestly frightening when he's got two. And when you get him down to one wound, you know, he's at that point, he's almost out of the game because at that point he's only got one attack and he's probably not going to be winning combats and he's going to die horribly shortly after that. So you have to be very careful about not letting him get down kind of below three wounds, because unlike your average hero who, you know, has a bunch of wounds and a bunch of fate, but, you know, that your average hero can lose all of its fate and all but one of its wounds and still fight just as hard as it did when it was at full wounds, full fate. Not so Gulivar. Once he takes a couple wounds, he really, he, he's a lot less impressive. And at that point, he can be surrounded and, and killed. I think one of his biggest weaknesses is, you know, obviously shooting, but I would say specifically evil shooting. I think there's just not much you can get around to that. Like, um, when you play Gulivar, Matt, like, is, and if you're playing an evil shooting list, do you have any strategies to mitigate it? Now, I mean, your strategy is basically the same. You just, you get him into combat and you keep him in combat. 
that's Gulovar's best shooting defense uh, is just to get him into combat and you know, get him into combat with a bunch of guys so that he can take cover. It doesn't always work. Rainier very famously at Nova managed to shoot out my Gulovar who had three wounds left with a very good volley of crossbow fire into combat. And I think he even still left his guy alive at the end of it. But, uh, you know, I, I've also had games where, you know, I've been playing Gulovar. I played Gulovar with the Corsairs and, you know, got like one guy into him on turn one and then was just volley firing Corsair throwing weapons and uh, crossbows into him and just couldn't take the guy down. So, you know, the, that ability to kind of slough off half the hit into your opponent is probably your best check against evil shooting. I mean, it's not as good as good shooting where... They just, you know, you get into combat with one hobbit and nobody dares shoot at him. But uh, it's still kind of the best place to be. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I guess a question for all you guys. Would would you say that Golvar is a better matchup in a good versus evil tournament compared to maybe blue on blue? I think when it comes to shooting, yes, but... Good side also has other threats that Gulivar might worry about. So, for example, Banish... We're going to see Lady of Light less now that she's been sort of nerfed. But, you know, when Bandage comes up, I think it's still a, a huge weakness for Gulivar, right? I mean, he has resistance to magic, but there's just going to be th that threat that's going to be threatening him every turn. So I guess from my point of view, it, you know, there's kind of pluses and minuses each way. So if you're Gulivar and you're fighting against good, you can hop into combat to avoid the shooting. But you're going to be facing a lot more of the shooting, typically. Unless you run into one of the evil shooting-specific armies, like Serpent Horde or Corsairs or something like that. If you don't hit like one of those evil armies that's all about shooting, then there's going to be a lot less shooting on the board that you need to worry about. I, I mean, the other downside of playing good if you're a Gulivar is good is the side that has all of the Fight 6 heroes that can strike. And you know, probably if you run into one of those armies, there's going to be more than one of them. And if Gulvar ends up in a position where those guys can just keep coming in and calling heroic moves and getting in on him, he's eventually going to run out of heroic defense and he's going to go down. So you need to make sure that if you're fighting good, you're supported by other magic users to kind of tie up those heroes and get them paralyzed or get them transfixed so Gulivar can eat them one at a time. Against evil, that's less of an issue because they have less of those kind of mounted fight six heroes that can strike. The other advantage you have if you're going against evil, if you're Gulivar, is evil has a lot less answers to terror than the good side tends to. Uh, unless you're, you know, goblins or orcs and there's there's a shaman running around casting fury. But with that, I would also say that evil has more terror and Gulivar's courage is not the most impressive. And you'll face things like other Harbringers and Drain Courage and stuff like that. Yeah, th that's all fair. Gulivar don't care about Drain Courage. Oh, right. Yeah. Because he got you know, he he drained his wounds. Charge is always four unless he's taken wounds. Yeah. Um, and that's true for Harbinger of Evil and, and all of that other stuff. So you always have a decent chance of getting Gulivar in there. The other thing is, that, you know, in evil armies, most of the time there's something that doesn't cause terror that he could eat. And, you know, he's perfectly happy just, you know, if, if you've got a front line of Numenorians, he's perfectly happy to 
you know, go somewhere else and kill the war riders or go some, you know, jump over the back lines and, and start taking out the spear guys. So, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that's a fair point that there's more terror on the evil side, but you sometimes end up in these weird games where you're, you know, you're playing Angmar against another terrifying army, like, you know, another Angmar or something like that, where the two armies are just kind of staring at each other and can't charge each other. And the only thing that's doing damage is Gulivar, as long as he can roll his six or higher on his courage test to go in. So I guess the ability to regain wounds, it doesn't make up for getting weaker as it loses wounds. Like it's nice, but it's not always going to happen. Sometimes you just lose too many wounds from shooting that you don't have enough attacks to kill enough to regain those wounds, right? Yeah, so that ability is useful when you've taken one wound. So like if you go down to three, you know, if you if you take the odd hit from shooting, then you can kind of jump into combat, you know, find a nice tasty morsel, eat it and get back up to four wounds and you're back in the fight. Once you get down to two wounds or God forbid one wound, that's really not going to work anymore because there's no guarantee that if you get into that combat, you're going to be able to have a nice easy snack to get back up to four wounds. So it, it's useful to kind of slough off that occasional hit from shooting, but there's a limit to its usefulness. If you take a good hit and you take like, you know, two or three wounds from shooting on one turn, oftentimes there's no recovering from that. A few episodes ago, we talked about Dweller in the Dark, who can also regain wounds. However, the Dweller doesn't lose attacks as it loses wounds. So maybe I shouldn't have been so tough on that profile back when we reviewed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other thing with the Dweller, although, I mean, I have to confess, although I, I own one, I don't think I've ever played it or played against it. But the other thing with the Dweller that kind of limits its ability to regain wounds is it doesn't fly. So it, it doesn't have that ability of Gulivar does to, if he's in a bad situation, as long as you can move him, he can go, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going over here and I'm going to snack on this lone cavalry figure that was hanging out. And that'll get my wound back and then I can jump back into the combat. You know, the Dweller in the Dark is a big base model and it, it has to move on the ground and it can get trapped in a position where it's not going to be able to fight something that's that's easy to chew on. Yeah. I think the scary thing about Gulivar is that even when he has one or two attacks left, there's still strength eight. He could still wound something and make a comeback. There's still, it's not that unlikely, right? Because he hits pretty hard. Yeah, he can do that. The problem is once he gets down to one or two wounds, a an ordinary an ordinary size hero that can strike up can take him out. Um, and even one that doesn't strike up can take him out because if he's only rolling, you know, one or two, or you know, if he's charging with two wounds left, he's got three dice. You know, he can flub that, and if he flubs that, you know, he can lose to somebody. And if he hasn't called that heroic defense, he may well go down. All right. So final ratings, I guess. I think he's, you know, pretty damn good, but, you know, I've heard people say he's probably arguably one of the best profiles in the game. I'm not quite there yet. I do agree he's probably the second best profile in Angmar. So I would give him a, like a 9 out of 10 because I, I do think that you can build pure Angmar list without him. Uh, yeah, if we're rating him on a, on a scale of 10, I think a 9 out of 10 is, is probably accurate. I mean, I'm not convinced that there is a 10 out there. There are some there are some ones that I think would, would probably get to, to 9.5, but I think a 9 out of 10 is fair. I mean, he's definitely a good model. He's definitely a model to fear. He's not a model that I would be like, yeah, every time I'm going to a tournament, I'm going to take Gulivar because I know who I'm going to win with him. But uh, he's definitely one that I will take to a tournament and know that I can do well with. I think we only gave 110, right, to Suladan? Suladan and Bormir of Gondor. 
<laughs> 10 doesn't necessarily mean a perfect hero. It means that it's always like a consideration. It's it's either an auto include or an almost an auto include. Yeah, no, I think I think nine is right. I was I was I was about to maybe tip up to nine point five because I think Gulivar's almost an auto include, but I think the mm-hmm. fact that you're more likely to take the Witch King of Angmar, if only slightly, is uh, tipping me back to to a nine. I'm going to go with an eight, and one reason is um, that we sort of discussed where. He is a little bit swingy, where if your enemy gets some lucky shots, then he might not be able to do enough to justify the 200 points or something, you know, either you run out of will or or your enemy gets a lucky shot or something like that. And I guess the other negative I see is Angmar just naturally doesn't have a good alliance matrix. So you don't have a lot of opportunities. I mean, Matt, I'm looking forward to hearing one of your lists today, which is an allied list. But typically, like I've tried in the past to maybe ally him into another list. And it's just not it's not easy to do, especially when like when he costs so much too. And and there aren't a lot of hero valor in a lot of evil lists. So that's why I'm going to go with an eight. But like in a higher points Angmar and me, I, I think he's pretty close to an auto include. So what you're saying is a well-reasoned argument. What I'm hearing, however, is a racial animus and bias against giant blood-sucking vampire bats. I think that's really what's going on, isn't it? <laughs> Charles, you're going to make Matt bring back his Angmar was to Nova this year. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to see that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with a nine. You know, there's there's always the opportunity, I think, when you play against Gulivar to kind of set up traps and hope that your opponent kind of gets a little bit eager, jumps into a into a gap somewhere that maybe you shouldn't and beat him down pretty quickly. But, you know, I, I did that in a tournament back in September last year. I was like, oh, I'll just open up these these gaps and hope that he jumps into one of them. Well, you see, my opponent also had three Barrowites and he paralyzed all of my heroes and Gulivar just just went hopscotch one to the next, just munching up you know hundred point heroes at a time, and it was it was pretty pretty devastating. He, he's you know regardless I think of the alliance matrix, he's just he is a very powerful hero that has as we saw in the profile so many different tools in the toolbox that he can pull out at any given time, and I think that makes him you know the perfect building block with the Witch King. Maybe not in the same list, but he and the Witch King are kind of your centerpieces for Angmar for good reason. Well, I guess I'll just say he kind of changes the way your opponent is forced to play because of like the threat range, especially combined with the magic uh, that, that accompanies him with, uh, with Angmar. So with that being said, he is a kind of a weird one to rate based on like how I usually rate characters on the podcast because like he kind of only does one thing. But he does it ridiculously well. But he also needs like support units. So I I don't know. I'd say like contingent on if you have like the Witch King also in your army or another Wraith with Compel, I'd say he's probably like a 10 because he just does that killing thing so well. The only thing I'm going to take issue with there is a statement that he only does one thing, which I think may be selling him a little short. I think Gulivar actually does three things. And all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fire off some of this powder. So Gulivar basically does three things. He is a hero assassin because he is fight seven. So any hero that gets transfixed or just about any hero that gets transfixed, Gulivar is going to outfight. And given his, you know, 
up to 10 attacks on the charge if he knocks the guy down, which he probably will. He's he's a great hero assassin against a transfix hero. If the Witch King manages to transfix anyone and that figure is within range of Gulivar, and he probably is, that figure is dead. And it really doesn't matter who that figure is. So that's number one. Number two is he is an excellent warrior killer because he can basically hop around and pick any two guys he wants and essentially kill them. And he can do that ad infinitum. Unlike a Witch King on Felbeast, who will eventually you know, run out of will by doing that, Gulvar is never going to run out of will. Probably not going to take more than one wound if he's only fighting two warriors. If he loses the occasional fight, he can just come in top in the next turn, kill a guy, and be back at full strength. That's the second thing he can do. And then the third use for him is as a hurl platform. Because he can fly and he can hurl. He's somebody you can take to the end of a battle line, get him on like that spearman at, at the end in the second rank, get him at just the right angle because he can fly anywhere and hurl down the line and knock the uh, you know the, the good mounted heroes off of their horses and knock a whole bunch of, of guys down. So that's kind of his third use. You know, all of these are offensive uses, obviously, but you can use him as any one of these three weapons. And I think they are actually three different weapons that you can use him for. And there's times to use one of those weapons and times to use others. Yeah, uh, those are those are great points. Let me just quickly add on one more use, I think. I would say aside from like the fighting prowess, at the end of the game, capturing an objective, like he is still a flying model. Like, you know, if you can fly him off in recon or in fog of war to capture an objective or something like that, you know, that's not his standard role, but you can, you know, last minute desperation. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I mean, and because he's a flying monster, he also has this kind of deterrent effect where you can't just leave like one guy sitting on an objective. If you're playing against Gulivar, you got to leave like a bunch because Gulivar will, you know, kill and eat one guy and then take that objective from you. So, yeah, that's that's a valid point, a valid use for him. The hurl is actually a really good shout. I don't really see that used very often because people just go for like the hero assassination thing. But given that he is actually he's face strength eight, that's you know, already four or five inches off of your basic <laughs> yeah, troop type. Sure. That's, that's actually really, that's big. That's yeah. like last edition kind of hurl shenanigans. So that, that's, yeah, that's a really good shout out. So Matt brought two lists to share with us today. One is a pure Angmar list and one is um, an Angmar alliance list. Matt, do you want to break down what is in your pure list first and go through what's in the list and what your general strategy is when playing with the list? So this is an 800-point pure Angmar army. Given the, you know, the, the first warband was not going to be the leader, but you know he is the centerpiece of this because of what we're talking about is, of course, Gulivar, Terror of Arnor. And with him, he has one Angmar warg rider who has, uh, what does he have? Yeah, he just has his, his warg and then one Angmar warg rider who has a shield. And those are the guys who just kind of run around with Gulivar and give him a couple friends that uh, can pin stuff down with a little mobility. Warband 2 is the army leader, and that is, of course, the Witch King of Angmar. He's got, I believe, 15 will, 3 might, 3 fate. He, of course, has the crown of Morgul, and he is sitting on an armored horse. And I have to say, I think I may have clicked on the armored horse by mistake. I'm perfectly happy to have him on an armored horse. There may be better uses for five points in this uh, list than giving his horse armor, but, you know, I gave him armor, so that's what he's got. In his warband are two Deadmar Spectres to do, you know, spooky pulling guys toward him stuff. 
and he has six Angmar orc warriors with sword and shield and six with spear. So he's got his, you know, his little orc battle line there. Warband 3 is an Angmar orc captain on Warg. So this is the heroic march that goes into this list. Zangmar needs heroic march because otherwise it can be, you know, kind of shot to pieces fairly easily. If you hit one of those really shooty armies, you need to get in close to it quickly and that's what you need to march for. With him are three Angmar orcs with spear, three with shield, and I threw in three with bow. And I threw in the three with bow just so there's some shooting in this army. And, you know, it's an evil army. It can shoot in the combat. Occasionally that's useful. And occasionally these idiots will actually succeed in hitting somebody and knocking a, uh, a hero off the horse. So I threw in three. If you want, change these guys into spear or shield guys if you don't want any shooting. But I always find it nice to have at least some shooting in a list. And then Warband 4 is the Shade. So this was my attempt to get kind of like three of the centerpiece heroes into an Angmar list. And with the Shade are, uh, let's see, one Angmar Arc Warrior with a banner and a shield, five Angmar Arc Orc Warriors with spear, the, the guy that has the banner also has a spear. So there's a total of six spearmen in this. And then six guys with shield. So this is, you know, the Shades Warband. Um, he's got the banner with it because you always want the banner to be around the shade um, so that you have an extra chance to get that six and auto win. And the idea behind this list, I mean, obviously you have the Witch King who's going to be transfixing guys so that Gulivar can eat. It is nice to have Gulivar operate within shade range so that, you know, Gulivar has a chance to basically, you know, if he, if Gulivar gets a six, he's going to win. If he gets the same number, he may well win because he's fight seven. Gulivar around a shade is really scary to deal with because you have to commit an awful lot of resources in order to even have a chance of taking him down. So that's the theory behind the list. You also have in Gulivar, I mean, the issue with the shade tends to be that you create a ball and everybody wants to fight within six inches of the shade. So you have this like 12 inch ball of Angmar that wanders around. Gulivar gives you the ability to have something that's scary enough that it can also wander off and pick off targets of opportunity. And if he needs to, he can operate outside the range of the shade and then hop back in if he wants to do that. So that was the idea behind the list. I managed to get, I think, 41 figures in here, which I think is still a decent number of figures at 800 points. I mean, a bunch of them are orcs. So, you know, a bunch of them are going to be vulnerable. But orcs within six inches of a shade are really kind of like elves <laughs> uh, when they're not within six inches of a shade. So I think there's something to be said for uh, even 41 figures in this list with all three of the Angmar heavy hitters. That's the thinking there anyway. I really like the list. I think, uh, you know, normally when I'm writing a list and if I have Witch King of Angmar and Gulivar in it, I'm usually debating how much mobility I'll need in addition to that. I like how you took two Warg Riders because I'm always thinking, should I just rely on my heroes and maybe one or two fell Wargs or do I need Warg Riders? I think you have like just the right amount. And I like how you said that you're going to play like the Shade Death Bubble, but then you also have hitting power outside of the bubble with Gulivar. So that gives you like threat, not just in the six inch range where, you know, typically an opponent might think that they would be safe as long as they avoid fighting close to the Shade, but they're kind of threatened beyond that as well because of Gulivar. Yeah, so I like the strategy and like the synergies within this list that you have going on. Yeah, we talked about the shade earlier. I guess it's still a bit surprising, I guess, because I don't see the shade as much anymore because it's the price of two barrel weights, right? So 
I mean, I just wonder if that gives you more flexibility because of all the magic that you're already bringing to the table. And, you know, we all know that magic compounds itself and it's easier to get off, right? Because it, now that you have the shade, Witch King as the lone caster, I think will be carrying more of the load casting spells. But yeah, I think in in a pure combat scenario, I think it can be incredibly deadly. Like if you don't suffer too many casualties marching upon your enemy. And as for the war riders, I do like them. I guess most of the time I like going with the wild wargs just to buff up the numbers a bit. But I guess with the war rider, you can you know dismount your uh, <laughs> orc onto objectives, or you can also charge enemy cavalry to nullify their plus one attack. So there's still some extra uses for them. So maybe there's an argument there. You can't really go wrong with either the war rider or just the wild warg. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I've kind of soured on the Wild Wargs over time. And I think that's because it's the combination of their 40 mil base with the fact that they're basically just at the end of the day, mediocre infantrymen. They have mobility. That's true. But the Warg Rider, when it hits, Warg Riders can actually kill you. And if they're going in against a lone infantry model and they're charging, it's two attacks. If they win that infantry model is going to be knocked down and suffering four strength four hits. And it's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that's something that, that cannot be said of the lowly warg. And the warg riders are nice. What they're nice additions to is if with your Deadmar Spectres, pull one of those guys kind of out from the line, and then you can jump on them with Gulivar and both warg riders. Yeah, you know, that's a great heroic combat opportunity. And you know, God forbid you get the Witch King of Angmar on his horse in there too, and then just you know call a heroic combat with somebody off of that, and you can do a decent amount of damage. And the warg riders are useful for doing that, and they're also useful for you know kind of pinning down other folks around Gulivar. And you usually know when you're throwing your fell wargs for that purpose that that those those wargs are probably going to go down. Some of the time with the warg riders, you get lucky, and those guys will not only survive but may actually kill what they're going in against. So I know that's kind of thinking. And, and you know, I think remind me how much does just a warg cost? Is it seven points or eight points? Seven. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. So you know, it, it's only four or five points more to put a guy on that warg, and I think most of the time it's worth it. I like both. I think if you compare a warg to a warg rider, yes, it's it's not capable of dishing out as much damage, but it's basically one more point than an orc, but then it has 10-inch movement. I think it's really cheap to just throw a couple of objectives and, you know, you don't really care if they die because they're so cheap, but... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I can see the argument for both. Yep. Richard brought up a good point. I do think it's a little weird not seeing Barrel White's Used to seeing barrel whites in almost every list and seeing a yeah, shade. No in this barrel one, whites. Yeah, no barrel whites. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, the shade in the right list is really scary. And, and in this situation, I think it does a lot for your army. But I guess in my mind, I'm just trying to picture how it would function with just one caster because I usually see Angmar as like a multiple caster army. Yeah, so so the army is the army has a different strategy when you have the shade versus the barrow whites. And I mean, don't get me wrong, you can throw barrow whites in here. The problem with barrow whites and the shade in one list is you get too many heroes that have no might, and your might tends to creep down really quickly. When you have the shade as opposed to the barrow whites, your army turns from kind of a hero assassination army, like I'm going to paralyze this hero. And then I'm going to eat him, and then I'm going to paralyze this hero, then I'm going to eat him. 
and turns into a warrior killer army because you just with the shade you just send your battle line in and you know that you're probably going to win most of the fights along the line and then you know you hope you get enough kills along the line and that will eventually add up and the other advantage you have is even against the heroes you still have the witch king there who's still going to be transfixing people for Goulevard to eat but every hero that's within six inches of that shade is basically fighting a fight value down. And actually, you know, more than a fight value down. And there's nothing those heroes can do about that except burn their might to, you know, get that extra one point higher. And what you'll find is that when you're playing the shade against an army with a bunch of heroes, the heroes will go in and they'll start to have to burn their might just to win combats, which is great. You know, you send Gulivar off and he can just eat some random guys someplace while the enemy's heroes kind of go into your battle line. And yeah, it's running into, you know, two orcs with shield and two orcs with spear. And oops, one of them rolled a six. So now that one point of might that was going to be used to call a heroic strike has to be used to, you know, win the combat or, you know, perhaps two might to win the combat or perhaps he's just not going to be able to win the combat and you're going to kill his horse. And stuff goes down. And once kind of the might burns down, that's when Gulivar starts jumping in and eating people. Because once the might's gone, you no longer have to transfix them anymore. You no longer have to paralyze them anymore. You can just outfight value them and kill them. Anyway, that's the theory. <laughs> I think it's a pretty sound theory, because then you have Gulivar also munching the enemy troops while their opponent's heroes aren't really doing anything. Then you should end up with the numbers advantage. And then with the shade, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different Angwar, but it definitely still works. I can confirm this is exactly how it works. Every time. I'm listening to Matt speak, and I'm like, wow. Just the the weird feeling of hopelessness of, like, the thing with Shade, or sometimes just I played against a list of one of our local players that was three Barrow White, like I said, three Barrow Whites and, and um, Gulivar, and it's just the constant using your will and, and might points to try and fend off paralyzes and not being able to do anything with your heroes and Gulivar just kind of like slowly making his way in and then just picking off your heroes one by one both ways really are a way to force your opponent to fight an uphill battle all game long and there's no way out of it even with your fight six mounted heroes sometimes they just you know get paralyzed fall off their horse and then you spend half the game trying to get them back up while Gulivar brings the walls down around you so Matt, what you said was interesting that this is more of a warrior-centric list. So I guess this is the list that you want to arm all your orcs with picks, right? Yeah, probably so. That's definitely a, a decent way to do it because you really, you have a lot less worries about piercing with this list just because you're going to be winning a, a lot more fights. I think going into it, I was skeptical about the shade, but, you know, after hearing, you know, your theory about it, I'll give this a legend. Okay, so... My final verdict for this list is, for me, I'm struggling between, like, a Valor and a Legend. So, Valor is, like, podium potential, right? I think it definitely has the potential to podium at a tournament. But I'm just so used to seeing Barrel Whites in, like, my opponent's list and then, like, my own Igmar <laughs> list as well. So, it's, like, hard to wrap my head around having a shade instead of that. And, like, seeing in my head this doing as well as if you had two Barrel Whites instead of that shade. You know, your tactics are pretty sound. I just haven't seen this tested before. I haven't seen this type of Angmar list. So I'm going to go with a Valor rating. And uh, that's only because I'm unsure. Because I've never seen it before. It's new. It's different. Exactly. 
Is it coming to Nova? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> it's kind of wild that you have the three main set pieces of the list all in one in an army. That is kind of wild to me. Like, like seeing that is like having like Boromir, Aragorn, and Gandalf the White in like a Minas Tirith list. It's, it's, well, that's kind of what it feels like. If you did that, you'd have like three other figures, right? <laughs> yeah. But like, you know what I mean? Like, it's wild to have that many like big threats and big things going on um, and still get to like 40 models. I guess like the only thing that I'm thinking of that, that I might change is putting shields on the spear orcs. Uh, and I know like that's not really like you don't need it so much in combat because because of the shade is there anyway. I'm just thinking because of shooting. That's one of the ways I found to play against the shade is just you shoot out all the enemy spear supports and then the, like two dice to one dice kind of helps balance it out. But it's not a big thing. I think if you did that, you'd have to drop a Dead March Spectre, or else the army would think get too small. But, you know, it's a valid critique. Evan always runs all of his orcs with spear as also having shields. I never do it because I always just want more orcs, but there's an argument to be made either way on that. If you dropped only one orc and added six shields, it wouldn't reduce your breakpoint. Your breakpoint would still be the same. Yeah, if you did that and like That's swap fair. the armored horse for a horse too, then you, you get most of them have shields then. Yeah, that's true. That might be... Yeah, but then you're going to get shot off your horse. But yeah, that, that might be a good use for the five points on the armored horse. That's a fair point. Well, if they're shooting at the Witch King, they're not shooting at Gulivar, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I have to give it a legend just because just of like, the reason I said like having those... Because I'm a guest things. and you're polite. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know, man. This, just having all three is, is wild. And then even Gulivar aside with like the, the shade effect in there... The fact that you also have the Witch King with the crown, if he's around the shade effect, he becomes a really, really good combat hero as well, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, so I mean, frankly, that that warg rider that we've been talking about becomes a really good combat <laughs> hero <laughs> when he's around the shade. So does that orc captain on warg. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. So it's yeah, I think I, I give it a legend. It has all the right things besides, you know, copious amounts of shooting. But you have the heroic march in there to close the distance and reasonable numbers. So I think you could make up for it once you got into combat. So, yeah, I, I give it a legend. How I rate it is usually how much I want to play against this list. And, like, a Hero of Legend list is, like, I don't want to see it at all. Anywhere close to me. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I, I have never played this list. Maybe I'll give it a try sometime. We'll have to see. Yeah, this is one of those lists that I'd like to actually see played. Normally, looking at the general troop count, I'd say obviously 40 troops, 41 for Angmar isn't great, but you literally have like the perfect set of three heroes there all at the same time. Just as I was saying, you know, the Witch King and Gulivar are really the great centerpieces for Angmar, but not always at the same time. And Matt was like, well, actually, if you wait four minutes for when I start talking about my list, uh, you'll see I have both of them at the same time and a shade. Yeah, no, it's terrifying. I rate armies the same way Richard does, and I, I never want to see this. Don't ever bring this against me, because I will be absolutely terrified. So look, the critique of the 41 figures is a valid one. I think the only thing that makes this list competitive with 41 figures in it is the fact that it has the shade. And the shade allows armies that have fewer numbers of warriors to survive in ways that a non-shade army with an equal number of figures would not. It would just get attrited to death because the whole attrition calculus changes when you have the shade. Unless the other guy is just kiting you and shooting into you and getting all his kills that way. Your attrition calculus goes from like, you know, one to one losses or since you got orcs, you know, maybe like 
you're losing three for every two the enemy's losing and basically just like flips the other way so that you know the enemy's losing three figures for every two you're losing and i think without the shade this number of figures wouldn't work so i don't want to get too off topic and just want to cover it briefly but the only ways to kind of disable a shade are i can only think of uh, really are like either to shoot it somehow or to banish it or floy is there anything else you can sap will it Mm. because you know obviously once its will goes away who cares if there's a shade there so that's one way to deal with it let's see so you said flowy you said banish banish and shooting all right so another way to do it is an experienced player with the shade will prevent this from happening but you can compel it away you can do other stuff to get it to move away. If you have multiple casters, you can get the guy that's blocking it in out of the way and then move it away because, you know, the shade has a bubble. And if that bubble moves, then all of a sudden you go and you pick on that part of the army that's not in the shade's bubble. And the other way to deal with it is, you know, deep strike stuff. I mean, Gulivar will eat a shade for lunch if he can actually get into the shade. And, you know, the s- same thing with Gwei here. And the, at that point, the enemy has to start devoting a whole lot of resources to just protecting the shade and if the enemy is doing that against the shade you know doing that to protect the shade then you can start to kind of pick apart the army and yeah that's a more effective way to do it if if you have troops that can can kind of threaten the rear of the shade and the guy has to form like a circle around the shade you have a better shot than if it's just like battle line on battle line and you know you've got 12 fights going across the board you've got minus one in all of them I'll throw trebuchets into the mix. Oh yeah, it doesn't have one. any fate. So that, if you get the lucky, yep. the lucky one, uh, the lucky Severed six heads. on the scatter, right? Yep. Or actually, this the severed heads would work, right? Because yeah, he's only courage. Oh. I mean, he's got the eight will. But if you're draining the will, you're basically doing the same thing anyway. So yeah, no, that's uh, all decent points. And um, you know, by the way, something we should mention is Gulivar hates siege weapons. Because he also has no fate. And if he gets hit by a siege weapon, there's a good chance he's going home. That's a point that should be raised, not only for the shade, but this is an army right here that does not want to run into a, uh, a siege weapon. It could ruin its whole day. Like a funny thing that happens when these lists that are generally really, really good and high ranked, and then you kind of run into something that's less obvious and less taken, and all of a sudden it just totally screws up the list. Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, that's the nature of these things is, you know, you can't come up with an everything proof list and you know everything's got its achilles heel somewhere okay uh let's go with the second list you brought with to share with us today the angmar alliance list so i have to say when you told me a we were doing gulivar and b you were expecting me to come up with an allied list with gulivar my heart sank because as you pointed out just about everything is a red alliance and you know i've never been a fan of red alliances Frankly, mostly because I can't keep track of all the, the rules and penalties that go with them. But the idea of Gulivar in a Red Alliance is you know, kind of particularly frightening because he's a high point model and, you know, he, he can go down and you're in kind of this catch 22 of, you know, do I have majority Angmar, in which case I've got this other contingent of something that I could lose half of and break? Or do I just bring like Gulivar and like one orc who then goes and hides under a bush somewhere? And then recognizing that if Gulivar goes down, you know, that's a break. And at the end of the day, the only Red Alliance I could think of that I was actually considering was putting the Shadow Lord in here with these guys. You know, like maybe the Shadow Lord and an Orc who would go hide under a bush and hope that the Shadow Lord didn't die. Because obviously, allying the Shadow Lord into Angmar, it covers up a weak point, right? Because it counters shooting. 
and then you can kind of walk up to somebody with impunity. On the other hand, throwing any allies into this list takes away one of the greatest strengths, which is its Armulus-specific rule of you know causing terror within three inch of its spirit heroes. And I'm not entirely sold on the idea of the Shadow Lord being a replacement for that. And he's 120 points plus to because you're going to mount him on something to sink into basically the ability to counter shooting. And I think at the end of the day, I'm I'm not sure that's worth it. So. I threw out those ideas and I was like, well, let's see, there's only one thing that isn't a Red Alliance and that's Moria. So I guess I'm going to ally with Moria. And so I came up with a plan. I don't think this is necessarily a great plan. I'm not entirely convinced this is even a good plan, but by God, it's the only plan I had. So it's what I went with. So this is the list. Warband one is Gulivar, the Terror of Arnor. With him are seven Orc Warriors with Spear. One orc warrior with spear, shield, and banner. So we get a banner into a Moria list. So that's, that's a decent thing. And then we have four orc warriors with shield. Then for the next warband, we have, and he's, Gulivar's the army leader. Next, we have Durbers, Goblin King of Moria, whom we have to have because we've got an allied Moria list. With him are two bat swarms, three goblin prowlers, five warriors with shield, four warriors with spear, and Warband 3 is Drizag the Beast Caller. Explain a little more about why he's here later. And with him are two more bat swarms, two fell wargs, six goblins with shield, two goblins with spear. And lastly, we have a Moria Goblin Might Battery slash Captain with nothing. And with him are three goblins with spear. And, well, actually, I think I, I clicked here. It should be three goblins with spear and um, six goblins with uh, shield. I think I clicked on spear. They're the same point. But the idea behind the list was there's going to be more goblins with shields and, and more orcs with spears so that you have you know orc spears sitting behind fight two goblin uh, shields just to give them fight three across the line. So the gimmick here is the four bat swarms. Because if there's anything scarier than being jumped on by Gulavar, it's being jumped on by Gulavar and a bat swarm. Because if you get jumped on by Gulavar and a bat swarm, the odds of you winning the fight drop to almost zero. So that's the idea: is we've got four bat swarms, and if and if we really want to do some damage, what we do is we have Drezag enrage one of those bat swarms, and you take the bat swarms, you try and basically. If you can find a, a figure that's out on its own, you put Gulivar and as many bat swarms as can fit in on that figure, and then you call her a combat, and you try and jump a bat swarm and Gulivar in on an enemy hero. And you try and rinse and repeat as many times as you can. And you also have the ability to, you know, one, one of the things you can do is basically if you can get a bat swarm on an enemy hero, you can, and you can't necessarily get Gulivar in one there in one turn. You just throw the bat swarm in to tie him up. Gulivar goes someplace else, kills a guy, calls a heroic combat, and then jumps in on the guy with the uh, bat swarm. And then, you know, other than the fact that there, I think, I think there were like 52 or 51 models in this list, 51 models in this list. So it's got, it's got decent numbers. The only other trick that it really has in the bag is uh, the enraged bat swarms, or, or if you get desperate, fell wargs. And enraged bat swarm can actually do a heck of a lot of damage to somebody and can take out a hero on a good day. So, uh, so that's kind of the the second part of this gimmick. 
the idea was basically to give Gulivar a whole bunch of bats to play around with so that uh, he doesn't need his magic because he's got bats. And, you know, you can't spend will to resist the bats. If the bats are there, you're not going to have higher than five, five and Gulivar will eat you. That's the plan. It feels like that should be in a Batman movie. You cannot resist the bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You know, people say money can't buy happiness, but it can buy bats forms, and that's pr- pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, everyone in this group has played one of Richard's lists that always has two bat swarms in it. And that's just two, and neither of them are enraged, and they're just really annoying to play against because the number of times I've had a hero that could probably, you know, take out the watcher in the water in a couple of turns and just have it weighed down by a bat swarm. Or, you know, just a bat swarm being able to fly into a couple of troops and tie things up for a couple of turns because they're, what, four wounds? So, uh, is it yes. four? Yeah, four so wounds. they're a really useful tool, and it reminds me a little bit of a list Charles brought uh, a few episodes ago where I was like, how is this going to work? And he's like, the secret ingredient is for Bane, and it's an expensive secret ingredient, but wow, does it make a difference. And I imagine the bat swarms would do just about the same thing. Just get in the way of everything, plug up your opponent, you know, make Gulivar impossible to stop. They're really useful and to be able to enrage them. I mean, to be fair, enraging anything, even a wild warg, can make it pretty useful for a turn. But uh, yeah, I'd say that the obviously the bat swarms uh, having the fly special rule makes them extra versatile. I mean, keep in mind, an enraged bat swarm, if you get it in on a hero, that hero's got to spend might to stay alive because an enraged bat swarm is going to be fight four, having your fight value. So you basically need to get up to it, fight eight, just to tie the damn thing. And if it wins, it's going to have, what is it, five strength six attacks against you? So that's strength four, right? Strength four. Let's see, it's plus three, right? If you no, channel, if it's channeled, yeah. So it's plus two. Oh, plus plus two. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, yeah. So maybe you want to channel it. Okay. So yeah, everything I was just saying was talking about uh, was talking about channeled. But you know, a channeled enraged bat will be a big problem. I mean, even if it's not channeled, the bat's still beating fight five heroes. Yeah, by, like, without help, so it's still pretty good. Yeah, and it's tying fight six heroes. Yeah, I love the enrage. And I love Druzeg. I've played him in a couple of local tournaments before. But I will say that as much as I want him to be like a competitive model, I've tried enough times. Like he's just a bit too overcosted. I think maybe 15 points to 20 points less. And he would be like a really good competitive choice. But the the enraged bat swarm is really strong. So I mean this is a really fun list just with the Druzeg inclusion. But I can't help but wonder if Ashrak might be the better choice here or Ashrak alongside Druzeg. I know it would be a little tough because you have the captain for the Heroic March and all that. Uh, maybe take out like two bat swarms or something. I think what's scary with Ashrak is the Shroud of Shadows. If you cast that on Gulivar and you channel that, it gives the ring ability. So you don't even need to fit in the bat swarm because I think. What I'd be afraid of is a good player might be able to position in a way where you have to get a Gulivar base size and a Bat Swarm base size into a hero. And if they're on an infantry base, then it's going to be near impossible unless they're just entirely out of position. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I think you could definitely build this list around Ashrak. So there's, there's two reasons that I went with Drozag the Beast Caller instead of Ashrak. 
the first is that is against terrifying creatures just so that the bats have his have his card value or if you really need to you can fury to get the bats in because otherwise the bats aren't going to charge and that's a problem the other reason is that i don't want to mortgage my house to own an ashrak um and you know i i I don't i don't own one Um, he's coming back he's he's coming back now so oh is he coming back are they They they, oh they did okay so i missed that all right well that's good i'll have to keep an eye out for that and you know there's nothing worse than having you know all set to take down that hero with the bad ghoul of our combo and then realizing that the hero happens to cause terror and oops uh, i failed that bat's test Oops, I failed that bat's test. Oops, I failed that bat's test. And and I'm out of luck. Yeah, fair enough. The courage one on the bats is such a pain. I guess one more thing about uh, what I noticed about your list is you chose Golivar as the leader instead of Durbur's, which is kind of odd because I actually find Durbur's very underrated leader because he also has heroic defense. He has two fate, two will, and two wounds. So yeah, uh, what's the thinking behind that? Because you're going to be throwing Gulivar into combat. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be throwing Gulivar into combat. There's a good argument for making Derbers the leader here. You know, if you do run into contests of champions, you want Gulivar to be your leader. That's really the only thinking there. The other thing is that if Gulivar goes down, you're going to lose the game anyway with this with this build. So you know, why the heck not, <laughs> right? Um, this isn't a game where you're going to kind of win in point, win on points because you know Gulivar went down, but you outpointed him somewhere else and, and kept your leader alive. But you know, with all that said, if you want to make Derbers the leader in this, there's definitely an argument for it. I love the idea behind this list and the alliance and the synergies you chose. Just adding on to what Richard said, I think Druzek is a little bit overpriced. I think if he was cheaper or if he's uh, Hero Valor, that'd be amazing because then you wouldn't have to take Durbers, right? And you could fit something else in there like Ashrak or, I don't know, I think a Wild War Chieftain might be pretty cool for Enrage. But you were talking about casting Enrage on Bat Swarms or Foul Wargs. I actually would consider dropping the two foul wargs and maybe a goblin because it wouldn't reduce your breakpoint and just put in a, a giant spider because I think enraged giant spiders are they might be the best like warrior model to enrage. I'm not sure you're, if you agree just because of their base fight four and they can seem to get into places really easily because they ignore terrain and, and stuff like that. The high strength and rerolls too yeah. on top of the, on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it also perfectly valid. You know, the only problem I have with the spiders is, you know, they tend to be vulnerable and go down. But you're right. If you if you enrage them, they do the job. I mean, what I was thinking of was that basically all of, of Drozag's will is going to go into enraging bats. So there's not going to be anything left over. I mean, really, the two fell wargs are there just to have a couple extra guys to grab objectives and kind of run off the board if I need them to. I can't imagine any circumstance where I'm going to end up enraging a fell warg over a bat swarm. And likewise, I can't really think of a circumstance, at least with this list, where I'm going to enrage a spider over a bat swarm. And I'm not sure an unenraged spider really adds much to this list. More higher strength hits, I guess. Yeah. If you're looking for that. The eggs in this list are in a different basket. Yeah. And what is it? It's twenty points for a um a spider, yeah. For a spider. So you'd you'd be you'd be dropping two basically you'd be dropping a net two figures out of this. Right. So which, dropping the two foul works wouldn't be enough. Yeah, you need to drop another guy. I mean, you know, which is fine. I mean, forty nine models versus fifty one models. Yeah. You could do that. And or I guess I mean, you could downgrade your prowlers if you don't want to lose another model. But yeah, you could probably do that. 
and yeah, downgrade two of them, and that would uh, that would work out fine. And I mean, you're right, having a spider in here to deal with terrain would be a useful thing. But you know, again, you got four bat swarms, and the bats can do that stuff too if they need to. My one concern yeah. with this list. So your main strategy on taking down heroes is to throw Gulivar into the hero and then throw a bat swarm, and most heroes wouldn't be able to stop that. My concern is we're seeing more and more lists, especially Legendary Legions, where the whole army is on foot. So what happens when all of your main threats are on 25 mil bases and it's just almost impossible to fit both bases in contact because Gulivar's on such a big base, right? Usually you're going to be yep. fighting a lot of one-on-ones. So, yeah. So when that happens, what you end up doing is you put Gulivar down the end of the line and you just hurl through that big glob of 25 millimeter figures and knock them all down, <laughs> which is the disadvantage of those 25 millimeter heroes on foot is that if you stick them at the ends of the lines where they protect against Gulivar, then you can jump a bat swarm and Gulivar into them on the end of the line. And if they aren't in the end of the line, then Gulivar can jump on whatever it is at the end of the line and hurl down it. And those guys are then on the floor. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the counter strategy to that. And then you've got four bats that can run around and, you know, either get traps by jumping on spearmen behind the line or grab objectives or run off the board or, you know, whatever you want to do. Or you can enrage them one at a time and send them in and just tear up infantry. I mean, one of the other things I was thinking with this list you could do is if the guys got several heroes is you can put a bat into each one of them, you know, like enrage one of them and then, you know, drop Gulivar some random place and call a heroic combat. And then like any one of those three heroes could die. <laughs> or if you wanted to, you could put him into one hero with a bat, call a heroic combat. And once you've done that, him and the other bat go and jump any other hero with it range which I think forces the other guy to do what you were saying, which is, you know, fight in clumps so that they, they can't get uh, jumped on and the clumps can get hurled through or, you know, surrounded by a whole bunch of goblins and trapped. Anyway, at the end of the day, like I said, I'm not sure I would give this, I know I wouldn't give this a legend rating. I, uh, I'm not sure I would give this a valor rating, but you know, it certainly would be an interesting thought experiment, right? On that note, I think I still, I think I still would give it a valor. Like it just kind of pips in there because of four bats. That's a lot of bats, and it kind of doesn't matter that you don't have other great fighters because as long as you can like reduce the enemy's might points closer to the end of the game, your regular goblins or well at least your regular orcs that are left are gonna be able to outfight enemy heroes or tie enemy heroes like high fight value heroes if there's a bat there. And you're probably going to have at least a couple bats left. I also really love the strategy that you just mentioned, where you get if you get two bats into like a couple of heroes, then no matter what, you're really forcing the issue on the opponent if you do the hero combat with Gulivar. So you could also just use a bat and hero combat with somebody else and just put the bat into an enemy hero that's got a few warriors on it, and right. then Gulivar does something else, and that's still that that hero is still under a lot of pressure, right? So yeah, it's just having that many bats is, is very overwhelming. <laughs> I think this list is good for a couple wins and a lot of fun, but I'm going to have to give it a fortitude, mostly just because <laughs> mostly just because the amount of threats. And I know having played Drew's Egg, even in like 400, 500 point games, he just runs out of juice. And I'm thinking an 800 point list, you're just going to heavily rely on Gulivar. I don't think Drew's Egg's consistent enough, so, but it, he's, uh, he's a lot of fun to play. I'll put an addendum on mine. If Derbers is the leader. Derbers is the leader. Right, fair enough. <laughs> then I'd put that addendum in. Yeah, that's... Yep. Yeah, it's really close for me, too. 
I think I'm there with you. If Durbers is the leader, I think it's a better list being able to kind of be a little bit more aggressive with Gulivar there. Aside from that, I want to give it a low valor uh, just because four bat swarms and Gulivar scare me. You know, the, the numbers aren't great. You definitely need to kind of be well controlled, especially with your goblins, just to make sure they don't die too quickly. 51 is not great. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when you, when, you, when you throw a 200 point figure in there, something's got to give. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very good list. I just think it would take a lot of maneuvering. But aside from that, it's a, it's a good list. Okay. I really like this list. I think a little bit of a hot take here. I think I would rate it slightly higher than your first list. I know none of you guys seem to be in that boat. But the reason is I really always think about the surprise factor. And I think the majority of players, if you were to play another like hot player in your local scene, they wouldn't know how to deal with this and they would see the weaknesses right away. But I just think that the first few games in the tournament, there's a good chance it's going to be a breeze for you because like how many people face this combination or or even know how to deal with four bat swarms at once? I think for the majority of the tournament, you could do pretty well. While the Angmar list is probably technically better, I think it's a it's a force that people are more used to fighting. And they might not be able to see the gimmicks of this list as easily. And they're more prone to make mistakes, even though maybe on paper, this list isn't as good. So I'll also give it a hero valor, but I think I would prefer this list over the first one. Might be a crazy take. I wrote the list and I think that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Surprised Charles is voting for like the more meme list than the the regular list. That's what the, the most shocking thing to me. You know what you could do to up the surprise factor? You can always add in the Moria Black Shields. <laughs> yeah, they never see that coming. <laughs> the surprise has got to do something. It can't do nothing. Wait, you, you could almost get two Black Shields in there for Drizag's cost, right? Like, it's only it's only a little bit more, like 20 points. Yeah, but why? Why not, Charles? Oh, Meme them. Black Shield Shaman. Sorry, Black, Black Shield Shaman, sorry. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. But regular Black Shields? Yeah. Sorry, yeah, not not regular Black Shields. Okay, let's move on to our open topic for today, which we'll be discussing monster tactics. So our open topic today is monster tactics. And it's going to just sort of be an open discussion on the role of monsters in the current meta and the current edition and, you know, how much we see it and just like some strategies and tips around using them. So I guess to start in the current edition, the current meta of the game, how important do you think it is for a competitive army to have a monster in the list or have like an option to take monsters in their army? Um, All right. So do you want me to go first here? Yeah, sure. All right, so this is a discussion point I, I've pulled up on an unexpected podcast before. I'm going to launch it into this, and I, I'm kind of curious to see what you do with it. So this is my position. If the monster does not have might, will, and fate, it should not be in your army, and you should never take one. And for those who are listening at home, I'm now going to hold up a big sign that says, prove me wrong. I, I, I staked out my ground. Cave yeah. trolls. All right, with cave possible troll. exception of cave trolls. And, and maybe the, the <laughs> troll brute. 
is that what is the, the mini troll in, in Azog's ogre. ogre? Ogre, sorry, ogre. Yeah, yeah. The ogre. No. All right. So I think those I think are the two where an argument can be made, but I am more and more coming to the conclusion that even in those circumstances, you don't want them. So somebody make a reasoned argument as to why I'm wrong and why you should ever take a, a monster that does not have might, will, and fate. If you have bat swarms. <laughs> I think if, if you can find a reason to um, put in a war drum, maybe. Although most of the time there are better ways to get movement cheaper ways to get movement uh, oh, much seen... cheaper ways to get movement <laughs> yeah yeah it's not the most cost efficient uh, especially when like there's so many heroic march options in mordor for example but like i've seen a list here and there where they're able to utilize the drums movement and also the troll in combat i mean i don't think the mordor troll profile is very good i would only take it if it's as part of the catapult so i don't know if is that an option picking the catapult uh yeah so that's an well okay i mean that's kind of a different thing because let's face it you're not buying the catapult to get the troll right (laughs) (laughs) you're you're buying the catapult to get the catapult and the troll is an added extra you know if you got the equivalent bonus from you know just a, a random orc being attached to that catapult you'd still probably buy the catapult you know it it ain't the troll so here's the problem, and I'll, I'll go into the problem, I think, in, in more detail, and it's the base size, right? Well, okay, it's a combination of two things. It's the point cost and it's the base size. And the point cost is a problem because by putting this monster in your army, you are foregoing a god-awful number of additional figures, like at least 10, you know, with a couple of small exceptions, in which case maybe it's eight. You're taking something that can cover 10 inches of battle space, and you're replacing it with something that can cover three inches of battle space. And when you do that, you're probably going to get surrounded. And it's very easy when you are a monster because you still only have those three dice typically, unless you got something with a monstrous charge or something like that. It's very easy to get surrounded, just flub a die roll and just die. And having those 10 figure equivalents die really puts a hole in your army. It puts a hole in your army quickly. And the other problem is your inability to match a striking hero will cause those monsters to go down so quickly that it's almost reached the point where if I've got an army and I look at the table and I see a monster, I'm like, ooh, how will I kill that? I know how I'll kill that. And I've got my plan on like turn two to kill that monster and take that 120 points of troll right out of the game. And from that point on, it's like I am now playing this, you know, 680 point army with my 800 point army. Still waiting here. I'm still here with my sign. Prove me wrong. Eagles, maybe. But the problem with that is you have to ally in Gulivar anyway. And then I, I think you're Not just going to have Gulivar. Or sorry, uh, yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. that would be really confusing. <laughs> that would be confusing. But we, we've all got Gulivar on the brain. Um, yeah, sorry. Go here. But then at that kit, in that point, you already have we here, so you don't really want another eco anyway. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not arguing so much for monsters, but I guess just being devil's advocate here, Ian brings up a good point with the eagles. I think, you know, potentially if they make more monsters in the future, it has to do more than just the killing. Because like you said, if it flubs the roll, then you're losing a lot of points just in one model. But I think in specific lists where I think if you're trying to fill out a niche in your army, like if you need the movement, or I guess like if you have two monsters, like, you know, Guahir with another eagle, 
you can plan something where you're you're hurling into each other to knock down or you're hurling in multiple angles to try to knock down the opposing army and their formation. So I think you have to have a very specific battle plan because I will say like monsters do a lot of things that you can't get, you know, from a regular warrior profile in the barges too, right? And of course, monsters with might are usually better, but you are also limited to usually one per list. So not the strongest argument, but I guess it's future-proofing where I think they can make a competitive warrior monster profile. I think it's possible. Yeah, so there's no argument there. I, I think monsters are certainly fixable. You know, my own thought is, you know, give monsters a special rule that gives them a certain amount of banner-like rerolls in the dual roll based on their base size. Because that's what gets them is, you know, they, they cap out at, in most cases, they cap out at, at three dice and you roll a one, two and a three, a disturbing. And if you do it at the wrong time or against, you know, a decent hero or even even a bunch of slubs, the army goes down. I think maybe there's an argument, more of an argument at lower points. If you're playing lower points, then you probably only have one monster and which you'll just pick a hero monster, right? But I feel like when I do see it in lists and not necessarily like top competitive players, but like even if it's in like a casual player who brings it to a tournament, they bring like an Isengard troll or something. If it's like a four or 500 point game, they're more likely to do more of the heavy lifting and more likely that their opponent won't have an answer to them than like a 600 or like 800 point tournament. So I think that they might not be the most competitive option at low points, but they might be more viable. Yeah, I guess that's a fair point. I mean, because there aren't going to be that many high fight value striking heroes around. But I guess the counter argument would be you're sinking a greater percentage of your points into something that only takes up a couple inches on the table and waddles around generally at six inches a turn. You know, asterisk next to the eagle. Yes, we understand eagles are different. But... uh you know, at low points value, it's a lot larger a percentage of your army that if the other guy's kind of canny in his deployment maneuver, he can just ignore. I mean, yeah, I think a big factor, like you mentioned earlier, is the attacks, the, the consistency, right? I think the base size is one thing, but even more so is the consistency because, say, like the Watcher in the Water or the Cave Drake had no might, will, fate, and you adjust their points down a little bit. I still think they're playable models, probably more so than the other trolls, because they do other things. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm now thinking <laughs> of the circumstance of the Cave Drake. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, th I think you're probably right. I'm thinking of the Cave Drake without might, and I think that's fair. And certainly the Watcher in the Water, because you're right, he's got other stuff. But, you know, we don't see anything like that. I mean, we don't see anything that has those kind of unique and useful battlefield abilities that doesn't come with, with a hero profile. I kind of feel like trolls are going to be doomed to mediocrity, though, because they kind of are like the base level for monsters. And like other monsters are kind of built for like their, their stats are changed around that. But that's kind of like the base idea of a monster profile. So I don't know how much more you could give them. Maybe if Hurl wasn't nerfed. <laughs> It's not nerfed only on not name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you need to give them some sort of reroll or you, you just need to cheapen them. I mean, because they made all these monsters more. They did a couple of things in the last edition, right? I mean, they nerfed them because they nerfed the monstrous, you know, the monstrous powers or monstrous attacks or whatever they're called. And simultaneously, 
brutal power attacks, yeah. And then simultaneously, they made them more expensive. And the theory behind making them more expensive, I think, was there are supposedly going to be less heroes around that could strike. So you couldn't have a random captain coming in with a bunch of his buddies and slaughter the poor troll. And you know, the problem with the second thing was that, you know, the problem was never really the random captain coming in and slaughtering the poor troll. It was the other three heroes that are in that army that can still heroic strike. They're still going to slaughter the troll when they come in. And the fact that he's got this giant base size, so you can never quite get that troll where you want him. And that's, you know, that's still going to be a problem. They also brought in heroic defense, this edition, which not only protects heroes against trolls, or, yep. but also it protects them against rend. Yeah. Uh, which That's is true. like used to be such a hero assassin sort of ability where if a hero loses a fight against a troll, it's almost guaranteed to be dead. Now it's not the case. I think, yeah, I think they've definitely taken a huge step down because you, you mentioned Hurl being nerfed earlier. What people used to do is just throw like a model down the line and it would be thrown so far that if you took an all cav army, it could be like half your army. So we, we didn't really see too many like Rohan armies, for example, at least not compared to this edition. So I definitely think they're not they're not nearly as powerful in the sense that they don't really control the battle like they used to. They don't really control like positioning like they used to. Flying monsters like Fell Beast, their fight five became a lot more of an issue since most of the name ring rates cannot call heroic strikes. So all of a sudden you don't see like them in every single Mordor list anymore. But on the other hand, I do think that they still play a role in an army. Like Richard said earlier, they do provide some kind of utility that other models might not be able to get you. And I think at this point, we agree that we're talking about hero monsters. Because even when the game designers buff the non-hero monsters, for example, the Gundabad trolls, they seem so much better than the Mortal trolls. But because of their base size, they have an even bigger base size. So, you know, they're still not something that you would consider like super, super competitive, right? Buffing their stats isn't going to fix it. It's going to come down to reducing their costs, I think. But yeah, Hero Monsters is probably where it's at in like terms of what we're talking about. Adding something that your army doesn't have, like adding a utility. So, I mean, I suppose it's worth talking about so the problem with kind of discussing hero monsters in general is there's so many of them and they do so many different things, right? I mean, the Watcher in the Water is a hero monster. Gulivar is a hero monster. And, um, you know, Birder is a hero monster as well. And it's an entirely different conversation as to how you would win with any one of those three guys. So I think everybody's kind of in agreement here that you're accepting a disadvantage when you put one of these non-hero monsters in your list. Let's say that you've bought your, your Mordor troll, you've always wanted to play with them, they look cool, you've put it together, you've painted it up, and you really want to put it in your army. What, what the heck do you do with it? So that you don't end up having spent all this time and money creating this wonderfully crafted Mordor troll to have it die in the first two turns of the game. So I think... One, resist the temptation to think of the monster as another hero, because it's not. And you can't do the things with the monster that you're going to do with the hero. You can't have it like hold the end of a battle line, because then a real hero and a bunch of his friends will show up and demonstrate to you the vulnerability of the monster to a hero, because it gives plenty of space to get ganged up on. I think, you know, with the exception of flying monsters that are a little different, my theory is if I'm going to have one in the army, it's going to sit in the middle of a battle line. And you have to be careful of two things. First, you have to make sure it's in a position where it's not going to get trapped. And you also have to make sure it's going to be in a position where it can actually get into combat. 
and you have to do this all the time, making sure that the enemy can't get two heroes in on it. A monster can fight one hero on its own. Where the monsters go down is when they have to fight two or more heroes or a hero and a whole bunch of guys and it gets trapped, then they go down. And if you put them on the end of the line, that's where they get mobbed and destroyed. If you put them in kind of the middle of that line with secure lines of warriors on each side and room to go back if it loses. That's where the enemy has to really think about sending a guy in. Because, you know, you can send your Aragorn in against a troll. Aragorn's going to have to strike up. He may still lose if he flubs. And if he loses, he's definitely going to be off his horse. He may be dead. And I think that's probably the best use for the troll. You know, and, and hope that you continue to win priority so you can get that troll into two enemies instead of just one figure a turn. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It's, it's a weird situation that they end up in where they're trying to project power, but only in this like little two-inch bubble around them in the middle of the line. Because otherwise, yeah, even if you push them forward by themselves, then that opens up so much more of like the diameter of their base to be able to charge. So it's, it is tricky when they're, when they're like the 60 mil base monsters. Yeah. The other thing is to really think about terrain. And, you know, I, I've seen just time and time again players take these big base monsters and then throw them into an area where there's just <laughs> there's a whole bunch of 50 millimeter bottlenecks <laughs> um so you know you you put one guy in the right place and that troll's going nowhere for the rest of the game except to charge that one guy who it will kill and then get replaced by another guy or you know it'll barge and get a little ways but then get stuck in the next cul-de-sac and get stuck there but if you're playing monsters, you want as, as smooth a playing field as possible so that that one tree doesn't get between you and where that monster needs to be. So I guess we can all also agree on that monsters that either can fly or can ignore difficult terrain are leagues above six inch moving monsters. Those are probably the hardest to get value out of just for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. There's a reason the mortar troll comes in the Pelner starter pack. Yeah, because otherwise they'd never sell any. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, well, that's, that's the reason why you see Gohir allied in a lot, and you don't see Trevier or Bayer running around, like, at all. Yeah. There also just seems to be, like, an infinite amount of ways to stop them, you know? Like, I remember one time someone on Facebook, like, a newer player asked, like, what are some ways to deal with a mortal? I'm having trouble against my opponent who always brings one. And then I'm just trying to think, wow, I'm actually typing out a lot of different ways to stop it. It's like an endless list, so... Other than like a hero with heroic strike, they also have like no magic resistance. So any sort of transfix could just make them useless. Something like fell light, call winds, they don't have anything that can, you know, stop them. And also they generally, especially evil monsters, have really low courage. So they could also just fail to charge terrifying enemies or just run away when an army breaks. So it's really tough, uh, I think, if you're playing a player with experience to get like value out of a mortal troll or like a gun bad troll right yeah well I, this kind of cut, cut touches back to what matt was saying is like because they only have three dice and not like one of the simplest things you can do to shut them down and every list has this is if you get two warriors with shield into it and you shield so then you're rolling more dice than it and maybe you have a banner too suddenly that massive fight value that the monster has doesn't mean that much if you're rolling you know two or three more dice than it or even better, take one warrior with a shield. <laughs> or one, yeah. I mean, because you, you still will win, you know, some amount of the time. And, you know, even if you lose, you're losing one guy, right? You know, as opposed to sending two guys in and shielding. And then if the, if the thing rolls a six, you're going to lose two guys regardless. But 
I guess there's arguments to be made. There's arguments to be made either way. But there's nothing more depressing when you're playing a troll is to have, you know, somebody move in like a six point warrior with shield or a seven point warrior with shield go in and, you know, against your troll every turn. And, you know, by the end of the game, you've probably killed like a half dozen of these guys and your 120 point troll has made back 42 points. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with all these points, but, you know. It's too easy to crap on these uh, trolls. So let me, I guess, try to offer one positive note. One tactic I would say is we know that uh, Hurl and uh, Ren tend to be the most popular and the most obvious ways to use the monster. There has been a couple of times where even I'm taken back still with a barge, a well-timed barge. And if you're fighting in a battle line next to a hero and they do not call strike that turn and you, you somehow... You know, whether you have priority, you select a troll combat first, or if they have priority, but then they don't think about the barge and then they let your troll fight first. You can kind of do the bulging strategy with the hero combat if you have higher fight value to jump into combat against the hero. So, you know, it's kind of a cool little hero combat trick without using might. But yeah, that's it's very, very conditional compared to the hero combat. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a perfectly valid strategy, the, the the bard strategy. When you think about where you want your troll or, or whatever monster you're going to be, you need to make sure that you have gotten that monster somewhere near where the center of gravity of the battlefield is. Because if you've, if you've committed that troll in the wrong place, there aren't enough barges to get you where you need to be. So it needs to be near where the big heroes are going to be fighting so that it can you know, get in there and influence that battlefield. And But I, I will grant you, I mean, if you can get into a situation where you have a combination of putting that troll near the right enemy heroes and manage to have the battlefield open up enough that you can get that 60 mil base into one of those heroes, your opponent will then need to deal with that troll and it will need to commit resources to that troll that it would otherwise be committing to try and get a hero. At the end of the day, would you be better off having spent that 120 points on 120 point hero? Yeah, probably. But you know that is the best way to kind of earn your 120 points back. So I think the takeaway from what everybody's saying is the way you get your value out of a monster is you get them into one-on-one attacks against enemy heroes because that is where they are going to be most effective. They're going to have the greatest chance of winning the fights and also winning the fights against opponents that are worth enough points to justify their commitment, right? I think that's what we come out to, is the way to use the troll or any type of no-mite monster is to get them in a one-on-one fight against an enemy hero where you got a decent chance of taking that hero down over time. I think that's probably the best use for them. I just crunched some numbers. Uh, so each chance of rolling a six on three dice is 42. It's about 42%. And... We didn't mention this, but another additional nerf this edition was that you can only support a model that's equal or smaller base size than you. So you can no longer put a Moria Goblin behind a Motor Troll and support him. Um, Oh, woe is me. (laughs) So it's really important to get that banner reroll on a monster, I think. Because if you're going to go one-on-one against a hero, you know, that's the way to get, to help you get the six that you need. I mean, that's a double whammy for Moria because... The goblin drum only affects Moria Goblin. So if you stuck like a Moria Goblin spear behind a cave troll and you had the banner reroll, you're going from three dice to five to win the fight. 
Yeah, I think at the end of the day, though, even if you don't have the banner reroll, it's still the best use of a troll or a monster because most monsters can take a punch from a hero as long as they are not trapped. What gets them is when they are trapped, and it's easy to get them trapped because of the big bait size, or when a couple of heroes have ganged up on them, that's when they go down in like one turn. But you know, if you can get your Mordor troll into combat with an Aragorn or somebody like that, you know, unless Aragorn's got like the pointy sword of doom, you can throw them in for two or three turns. And you know, if you win one of those fights, you know, you can do some damage to that hero. I can think of two other more niche roles that monsters can play. One is Matt, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you know you've done the champions and chariot with Gandalf. I think you could do something similar with a monster. For example, like a Saruman with an Isengard troll and where you can send the troll into combat and then you can blast that combat so that all the models get knocked to the ground except for the troll. Whether that's worth it, I don't know, but it's a cool tool that you have. It could work alongside spells. And then the other thing is that most monsters are relatively tough and they can survive at least one round of shooting or one round of combat. And it can be really frustrating in scenarios like heirlooms or seize the prize when your monster picks up the object and just runs the other way. Like you're not going to be able to take it down with like a deadly shot or, you know, a really lucky sort of. But you can with a siege weapon. <laughs> That's true. There are still limits, but. Yeah, there's, a, there's always limits. Well, you know, it, it's interesting that you bring up that idea of what I like to call uh, hurl pinball. You know, where you have like one monster hurling into another and then, you know, the monster you hurl into shrugs it off, but then everybody who's in combat with it gets knocked down. The ultimate expression of that list is there's an 800 point list that you can do, which is uh, Treebeard, Quickbeam, uh, Beachbone, um, Gwayhir, and Tom Bombadil. And uh, that is, you know, that, that is kind of the ultimate expression of that pinball list. Yeah, most times you, if you're playing an all-monster list, you don't want to get yourself surrounded. This list does not care about being surrounded. It loves to get surrounded because it has enough might and Tom Bombadil to, like, refuel it. It waits till everybody gets surrounded, and then it's like one guy calls a heroic combat, spends as much might as it needs to win, and then throws into another guy. Then that guy, you know, wins the combat and then throws into the next guy. And they just, you know, kind of keep knocking down uh, all of these things, which is a fun game to play if you have a whole bunch of monsters. That really depends on the fact that not only does everybody have three might in that list, but you've got Tom Bombadil running around refueling the might. It is a fun game to play. <laughs> fun for you, but maybe not your... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say fun for who. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, it is an interesting time when you end up playing an objective game against an opponent, though. It becomes a very interesting game for both sides. I guess one type of monster that we haven't really touched upon is monstrous mounts. So, like, if you have the option, I know we did an episode on Radagast last year, and we didn't really see the eagle on Radagast as the most, like, competitive option. But I guess other than that, in the current rule set, it's just either Radagast on Eagle or uh, a Ring Wraith. Right? Although there are still cases where you want to take the horse to save points. So Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you know, the advantage of the monstrous mount is that, you know, you get the extra attack on the charge. The disadvantage is you can get knocked off your monstrous mount. And then, you know, a Ring Wraith without its fell beast is a lot less scary. But, you know, with that said, uh, nothing wrong with Monstrous Mount. I mean, I've played Radagast on Eagle a few times, 
I'm trying to remember if I played him this edition or not. And, you know, he's fun to use. It's just, it's the six non-regenerating will that, you know, are kind of the issue. Yeah. He becomes essentially a, a combat hero at that point. And yeah, he is. He plays a completely different role. Like you're going to be charging in, you're going to be calling nature's wrath. I just think that he becomes like almost like not a wizard anymore. He's just a completely different profile. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a souped up Gwei here at that point, you know, who costs a lot more. And I think the reason you don't see him that much is because Gwei here does similar things, but with more kind of bang for the buck. Well, uh, Fell Beast, I think it adds quite a bit to a ring raids. Like it's harder to be dismounted in terms of like shooting or I guess in combat as well, because you have the extra wounds, but also increases your uh, threat range when it comes to charging or when it comes to magic. So I think locally it's about, we probably see the horse slightly more, but I still see like Fell Beast here and there. Yeah, I mean, where we see Felbeast is on specific ring wraiths, right? Yeah. The Witch King often shows up on a Felbeast. Kamul always shows up on a Felbeast. Occasionally, you'll see... There's an argument to be made for Betrayer on Felbeast, an argument against it, too. I tend to play the Betrayer, not on a Felbeast. And then, yeah, there's, there's a less persuasive argument kind of for every other ring wraith. It's the ones that you definitely want the Felbeast for, the ones that can strike, because they can jump in and strike. It's... The fell beasts are kind of less of an issue for the guys that cannot strike because you still end up with a problem of, yeah, I've transfixed Aragorn, but then I'm going to go in with my ring wraith on fell beast at fight five and I'm still going to lose the combat. Yeah, that's a problem. Maybe for the dark marshal because he is fight six. Fight six. Yep. Fair point. He's another one who often shows up on fell beast. Although for whatever reason, I don't think I've ever played the dark marshal. I think I've maybe played against the dark marshal twice. For whatever reason, he tends not to show up. Yeah, Felbeast without a strike, just having a fight five monster is also just seems a lot less threatening in many situations. Just because fight five seems to be like the average fight value, or you see it the most. So you never want to just tie an opponent's fight value when you're using a monster, right? When yeah, you're... no, that's that's certainly true. Because, you know, one elf can, if you're a Felbeast and you jump into the middle of the pack, you know, one elf can like ruin your whole day, especially, you know, one elf with an elven blade in the front rank. that's going to win the tie on the three up because it's never just going to be that one elf, right? It's going to be that one elf and four or five of his best buddies. And then you get a real problem. Yeah. Part of the issue, I think, with the Felbeast as well is because they are 50 points and there's a lot of other heroes in that same list that are hovering around the 50 points mark. And it's like, would you rather have that or would you rather have like 10 more models when you're talking about orcs, right? That's that, that makes a big difference. Yeah, you, you really need to you need to justify that additional 50 points and, you know, throwing a fell beast underneath like a regular wraith. That's hard to justify. All right, Matt, thank you for joining us today. It was really nice hearing your thoughts on monsters and on Gulivar. All right, guys, it's been a pleasure. You can find both of Matt's lists on Facebook. Just search Into the West podcast and they'll be on our page. Once again, thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast. Bye.